Good morning. Please help yourself to some coffee. We want to thank our sponsors for the Amuna series for the year with a tremendous gratitude to Drs. Avi and Bella Morgan, who sponsored Leila Nishmas, Dr. Rabbi Dr. Brian Galbit, Baruch Tzvi Ben Ruven Nassan, who lived a life filled with Torah, Vodas Hashem, and Amuna. We're making our way through Revolbez Be'amunasa Yechia, Revolbez amazing safer that we're only really alive when we're living with Amuna. That a person who's living in the dark and the dark ages, and a person who's living in their ego and their arrogance, and a person who's living in the illusion that they are in charge and they are in control of the world, such a person is dead even while they are alive. And a person who had Amuna, who had faith, they continue to live even after they are gone. All that's just in the name of the Sefer Be'amunaso Yechia. So we are continuing developing on the theme that we began several weeks ago, a tradition from Chaim Vital. We are made up of four different elements, fire, wind, water, and earth. And each of these elements within us drive different attributes, personality traits, character, behaviors. And that the way to grow as people, to become the best version of ourselves, is not to try to work on the character, not to work on the expression of those issues, uh, the symptoms, but rather to heal the illness at its core. And we've been making our way through this parak, dealing with Yesod Ha'esh, dealing with the attribute of fire, the notion of, uh, of fire, the, the fire in our belly. If directed properly, gives us enthusiasm and energy and the drive to make a difference to change the world. And driven in uh, correctly or inappropriately, that fire uh, within us promotes a sense of arrogance and a sense of ego. We talked about stealing the badge and the uniform from God, pretending to be the authority even when we're not. You could be dressed in the costume, imitating and being an imposter, it doesn't make you, it doesn't make you in charge. And what happens, Rav told us, when you have this fire that's misdirected within you, the fire is not channeled to do good, but the fire is channeled to, it consumes your ego. It's all about you, your way, the highway, the way you see the world. There's no room for others. There's no space for a different opinion or a different way of life or a different belief system. Everything has to be your way. Then that fire drives you to make poor decisions and to damage relationships and to, uh, to put yourself in a superior judgmental way against others. And when among the alienated relationships that you have in your life are not only the people around you, but the Almighty, Hashem Himself, Hashem Himself, we have, to, uh, we have to make space for God. If you don't make space for God, God says, I'll go elsewhere, I'll find another place. So what is the exercise that we do daily in order to make room and space for Him? How do we remind ourselves each and every day that He's in charge, we work for Him, He doesn't work for us? It's His version and view of the world that matter, not our finite view of the way. So Revobo told us, based on a tradition of the altar of Kelm, tefillah, davening. Davening is an exercise in humility. When you come before God each and every day and you say, you provide health and you provide um, nachas and you provide uh, parnasa and you provide justice and you pro Asking Hashem for each of those things reminds us that they depend and rely on Him. As much as we think we're in control or we're in charge or we take pride in what we've accomplished, davening is an exercise in remembering that in fact He is in charge. We concede and we submit to him. I'll tell you just as an aside, Rabbi Salavitchik had an amazing insight with this. That's why he insisted that in the Mishaberach for Cholim, when we daven, we often offer a Mishaberach. We have in mind those who are sick, those who are ill in general around the world, but you can't daven for every sick person. You'd never get to work. So we daven with the people that, that we know. That's our responsibility. The people that we know who are ill, we daven for them. So in that Mishaberach, we, we 
list the person's name, we identify the person for whom we're davening, but among all those who are ill, we can't daven for them in isolation. We have to daven for them in the context of community, which is, by the way, why we're allowed to say the Mishaberach on Shabbos. Because on Shabbos, you're not allowed to offer personal prayers. So by making it among all those who are ill, it's not a personal prayer, it's a public prayer. Public prayers are allowed on Shabbos. So in Mishaberach, we daven for the person, and we say, So most Sidurim have, God, heal them. Why? Because we're davening for them. Here we are interrupting our day, being thoughtful and kind, thinking about people who need our attention and help. So God, because we're interrupting our day and we're thoughtful enough to think of them, you think of them too. Heal them. Heal them because we're davening. Rizalvechik said that's, that's heretical. You can't read such a Mishaberach. It has to be, We're going to give staka on their behalf. What's the difference? What's the difference? I didn't get to this last night. I spoke last night in Atlanta about uh, we are the biggest recipients of the tzedakah that we give. It was all about, um, you could listen online, and it'll be in the newsletter tomorrow morning, but it was all about why in the formula of things that we do this time of year to try to advocate for ourselves. We say to the Almighty, sign and seal me for a good year. You know, would you mind giving me a good year? Like a no news is good news kind of year. Just, just even killed, just everyone healthy, same headcount in my home the end of the year as the beginning of the year, my bank account with enough to be able to pay my bills. Just, we ask Hashem, please give me a, a good year. So among the things that we're called upon to do are tshuva, think of unisana tokef, the most stirring, moving part of our davening, or at least because the tune we use and the imagery it has, who will live and who will die, who will conceive and have a child and who will continue to struggle. The imagery of Anasana Tokov makes it so moving and it culminates with the chazan. First the tzibor, all of us scream and the chazan repeats, Utashuva utafila utzedaka, I'll spare you singing it. Utashuva utafila utzedaka, ma'avir ha This threefold formula. Do tshuva? So I understand, tshuva is I've transformed myself. I'm not the same person I was. So therefore I'm deserving of a new decree. I understand how that works. Tfilah, I understand how it works. I'm not the same person. When I leave davening, I shouldn't be the same person who came into davening. When I came into davening, I was arrogant and egotistical. I thought I was in charge and I was in control. And I walked out of davening, I remembered that I work for you, you don't work for me. Tfilah also. But how does stucca work? What am I, bribing God? We just had this whole college admission scandal. And we all look at it, we all look at it incredulously and we say, indignantly, and we say, where's the justice? What kind of ethics? Where's the morality of somebody who pays their way in? Oh, by the way, God, can I pay my way into a good year next year? If you just write a big check, if it has enough zeros, if you give staka, then you get a good year. All of a sudden, God is bribable. We're buying him off. I understand tshuva and I understand tefillah. Why are we giving tzedakah? Why are we giving tzedakah? So I'm not going to talk about it now. I talked about it last night for an hour, for 50 minutes. You can listen to it online. Um, the core, I gave three perspectives or three answers to that question. But what all three have in common is that our attitude towards our money, and we are stewards on money, it's not ours. It belongs to God. He has entrusted us. We are the trustee to make sure it gets to the right address and does the right things and makes the right impact. And the attitude we have towards, the, towards our money says everything about us. Are we arrogant or are we humble? Are we noble or are we self-centered? Are our priorities correct or are priorities cal calibrated correctly or are they out of whack? Our attitude towards our money, are we, are we, do we have integrity or are we corrupt? 
Our attitude towards our money says so much about who we are. How do we use our money? Do we use our money to judge and to be superior and to manipulate? Do we use our money humbly and, and with great humility to make that difference? Our attitude towards our money. So I didn't get to this last night. That's why I'm saying, you can listen to the whole class. I didn't get to this last night. But Rabbi Soloveitchik said, so why in the Mishaberach, coming back, why in the Mishaberach do you have to say, we're davening for someone's health because we're going to give tzedakah on their behalf. Why can't I say, give them good health because I daven for them? So I'll tell you why. Because the Gemara says in Sukkah that there are three things that cause God to take out your file. Three things that make God go to the file cabinet. He used to say I have to go to the file. Now he probably is on Google Docs. So three things that make God go on Google Docs and say, oh, Goldberg, Ephraim, you know, let, let me see how he's doing. Let me see what he's, what he's worthy of. And what are those three things? So the Gemara says, if you are Moser Chaver if you turn your friend in, now, it's a different world today. We live in a democracy, in a benevolent democracy. But for many or most of Jewish history, Jews lived among dictators and tyrants. And if you would turn a fellow Jew in, it could cost them their life. Being a Moser through Jewish history was one of the worst things you could be. Lahavdil, lahavdil. But in certain other spheres and groups, if you're a snitch, it's the worst thing you could be. To do a lot of things corrupt, but if you're a snitch, it's the worst. So for the Jewish, in fact, in someone's book who spoke here, who lived in that world. He actually quoted the Rambam in his talk and in his book about being the last Jewish gangster. And he quoted this Rambam and he said, the gangsters got it from the Rambam, that being a snitch, being a Moser is the worst thing that you could be. So basically the Gemara says, you think you're in a position to turn a fellow Jew in? Let's see how well you're doing. You're turning someone in? You're the whistleblower on someone? Not, not, it, it, there's, it's an ethical thing. It's a moral, wonderful thing to be a whistleblower. I'm talking about in a different context. But you think you're turning somebody in? Let's see how well you're doing. The second thing the Gemara says is you walk underneath a dilapidated wall. You walk underneath a shaky ladder. Now, as you're so arrogant, the thing looks like it's about to collapse, but you walk underneath it so sure that you'll be protected. God says, you're so sure that you deserve to be protected? You put yourself in a dangerous situation with such confidence even though it's so foolish that you're going to be okay, such arrogance, let's see your file, let's see whether you deserve to be saved. The third thing is somewhat, the Gemara says this, um, doesn't really define it. Gemara says, Iyun Tfila. The third thing is Iyun Tfila. And Rashi and Tosos there have a debate, what does that mean? The third thing that we can engage in that causes God to look at our file and evaluate us and our worthiness is Iyun Tfila. What is Iyun Tfila? So Iyun Tfila is, when you walk away from davening saying, you know, I just had the best davening concentrated on every word, I sang every melody, I didn't talk whatsoever, I was on time, I shuckled. What a davening, I'm positive I'm gonna get answered now. My davening was so sincere, was so authentic, was so moving, I was brought to tears. There's no way God doesn't hear me. There's no way I'm not answered favorably or positively. So such a person, God says, get me their file. I say, get me their file? What a wonderful person. They've davened so beautifully. They put in their all and their greatest effort. And now they're confident that you, the one they love, has heard them? Why is that a bad thing? That should be a good thing. So the explanation is, you know why it's a bad thing? Because if you think that if you daven well, you deserve to be answered, who are you really davening to? And what is davening really all about? It's really just you and your self-control. It's really just you and you are micromanaging and controlling. If you think that if I daven well, I get answered, then davening is just another thing on your checklist of your initiative that reinforces this illusion that you're in control. 
I have to go to the doctor and I go to work and I do this and I pay this bill and I invest in that. Oh, and I said my davening and I'm good to go. I said my davening. I said my davening. By the way, remember I told you last week about somebody who had run into a wall, davens a lot, says extra things, is a really, really special righteous person and then felt God was, didn't answer them in something and therefore had this crisis, I don't believe in God anymore. And I told you what I told that person, how wrong I think they were, that we don't only trust and believe and talk to God when the answer is yes. It's easy to do it when the answer is yes. We have to talk to him and trust him when the answer is no. And he's such a deep faith, so it really, sh it really shook me that he was filled with this doubt and this angst and felt that there's no God anymore. Anyway, fast forward one week and that issue is please God resolved for the positive. Yeah. And what for him was this earth-shattering, enormous collapse. If you just gave God a little bit more time, you might figure out how he can work it out or work it out. Sometimes it's a week, it's a month, a year, a lifetime. Sometimes we never get to know why he does what he does. But sometimes you gotta give him a little bit of time and he's got a way of working it out. But I said to him then, and I say to you now, that if we only talk to God on condition that he answers yes, we're not really talking to God. We're just using God as another tool to get what we want. The question is, do we believe in God and we talk to him even when the answer is no? So that's Iyun Tefillah. Iyun Tefillah is, if I, if I just daven well, then God has to answer me. Well, then I'm not really deferring or conceding or submitting to God. It's like you ask your spouse to do something and then you figure it out before you ask them how to formulate it really nicely. So you offered a nice compliment and you thank them for how amazing they are in your life and you try to say it in the way that they always tell you. You never ask it, so you say it in that perfect way and they still say no. You say, what do you mean no? I did it exactly right. What do you mean no? What do you mean you have a different opinion than me? What do you mean you don't agree with me? But I complimented you and I thanked you and I said it quietly and softly and nicely. Like, what do you mean no? So the other person says, do you want my opinion? You want a relationship with me? Or you think that as long as you say it the right way, I just have to be the rubber stamp to everything you want. God's not our rubber stamp. And, and we should be grateful that he's not because he has the infinite, omnipotent perspective and vision of what's best for us. We have a limited, finite perspective. We should be glad and grateful he's not a rubber stamp. But if we treat God like he's a rubber stamp, then we're not in a real relationship. That's Iyun Tefillah. So said Rabbi Salavechik, if you daven the Mishaber for Cholom and you say, Why should you heal them? Because we're davening well right now. God says, that's not why you daven. Give tzedakah. Do an act of charity. That would be a violation of this prohibition of Iyun Tefillah. Okay, so let's continue in Revoba. We're second paragraph on the bottom page, Ayin Ches, page 78. It's not automatic that davening strengthens our faith. For davening to work, you have to be present while you davened. Davening can't be a rubber stamp or a checklist thing either that you say, you know, I started at the beginning, I made it to the end, I don't remember saying one word, but I know I was there. I clocked in. If you look at the timestamp, I clocked into shul. There at 9, left at 11.20, 11.30. I put in my time. I don't remember saying one word. I don't know what the words mean. I didn't really have a conversation. I never felt I was in the presence of God. I wasn't really, my soul wasn't really on fire. I didn't nourish my soul. But I clocked in. I clocked in. If you're not paying attention, it's very easy to say the words that God is the opening words of the Amida, that God is almighty and powerful and wondrous it's very easy for it to rattle off. I, I um, came back from Atlanta last night and the plane, the flight landed on schedule, which was pretty late, and I had to drive home. And at some point I realized that I got home and I didn't remember driving one minute of how I got there. Oh, yeah. 
I didn't remember being on 95 or how I, it was safe, I was fine, my eyes were open the whole time. It wasn't that it was dangerous, it was late at night, I was tired, my mind was wandering. I somehow got from Fort Lauderdale Airport to Thornhill Green in the driveway and didn't remember one second of how I got there. So you'll ask, well that's, that's extraordinary. How, how did the brain work? How did it know when to step on the pedal and when to step on the gas and when to turn on the blinker and when to make a turn and when to get off the highway and how to get home? And the answer is something called hergel. Hergel means habit. Hergel comes from the word regel, where your feet just take you there. The same way I drove home, sometimes our feet can just walk us someplace and we don't ever remember getting there. Hergel is from regel. We try to interrupt the pattern of habit in our lives. How? We have a calendar, which is hergel. A day blends into a week, blends into a month, blends into a year, and it just all blends together. Our life, we're creatures of habit. It all blends together, and we need to interrupt it and remind ourselves what really matters, to calibrate our compass, to reevaluate our priorities, to tap into different energies and themes. So we have to interrupt all of the hergel. How do we do it? With shlosha regalim. We interrupt the hergel with regalim. We interrupt the habit of our feet just taking us there with regalim. The holidays are called... Sukkot, Pesach, and Shavuos are called the three regalim because they interrupt the hergel. So we have this enormous problem. Our, our time is suffering from it more than ever, thanks to devices, and therefore we're focused on solving it more than ever, although I'm not sure we're winning that war. So that's why the catchword of our generation is mindfulness. Mindfulness. Mindfulness books and mindfulness seminars and mindfulness gurus and mindfulness workouts and mindfulness uh, yo everything's mindfulness mindfulness mindfulness. Why do we need mindfulness? Our grandparents didn't need mindfulness so much more. Why didn't they need mindfulness? Because they weren't suffering from mindlessness. <laughs> Seriously, they didn't suffer from mindlessness. When they were talking to someone at night, it wasn't competing with their device and their TV and the radio and the 17 other things and checking the social media and 4 million other things. So when you're not living in a mindless time, you don't need to focus on mindfulness. When you're living in a time that's mindless, you need to focus on mindfulness. So Hergel is the biggest obstacle. We are absent present in so much of our lives. Our physically we're there, but if our mind is elsewhere. The whole drive home from the airport, I was absent present. I was in my car, I got home. Now, it didn't really matter that I didn't pay attention because there is no value in paying attention. I mean, there's a value to be safe, but beyond getting where you need to go, the experience itself is not transformative that, you know, I, I missed out on the opportunity to have the experience of driving home on 95. No, it's a purely functional, pragmatic goal. I had to get home, I got home safely, we're good to go. But at that same attitude where your mind lists in a conversation with a child, with a spouse, with the Almighty, your mind lists in something that really matters, that makes a difference, that's supposed to be an experience. Move on me'elav she'tfila kazulo tavila amuna. So an empty tfila, which is just habit, a tfila where you got to the end and you don't ever remember how you got there, you don't remember getting home, is an empty tfila. It's an empty tfila. Just like if you go out with somebody to spend time and each of you on your phone the whole time or your mind has wandered because you're focused and worried about something else, you think you get the credit of having spent time with them, but you don't. You were absent present. You weren't really there. Baal Shem Tov taught, we are wherever our minds are. We are wherever our head is. That's where we are. That's where we are. In fact, this is in our, I didn't get to this in the Parsha class yesterday. So the Amuna class is basically all the things I didn't get to in the other classes during the week. So in yesterday's Parsha class, or maybe I did get to it. I don't remember. The Svas Emes has an amazing insight. When the person brings their vidui meiser, 
When a person, the farmer comes and brings the confession of the tithes, he says, Lo avarti shachachti. I didn't violate any of your mitzvos, shachachti, and I didn't forget. Isn't that redundant? If you didn't violate the mitzvah, of course you didn't forget. You're saying to God, I did all your mitzvahs, I did them perfectly, I did them correctly, I did them accurately, I didn't violate any mitzvah, and nor did I forget. Well, if you didn't violate, of course you didn't forget. Isn't it redundant? So Svasem is the Ger Rebbe has a great insight. He says, Lo avarti means physically I did it, but means and I didn't forget to be there while I did it. Lo shachachti. I was present. I wasn't absent present. Lo avarti mitzvah says I shook the lulav. Lo avarti mitzvah says I heard the shofar. Lo avarti mitzvah says I lit the candles. Lo avarti mitzvah says I sat in the sukkah. Lo shachachti means I knew why I was doing it, what it was all about, why I was there, and I had it in mind. I was present with you. I was in a relationship. There was an intimate rendezvous. I made a connection. I was transformed by the experience. You could hear the shofar and put the ch- check, Rosh Hashanah, two days, shofar, check. But did you close your eyes and did you let the sound of the shofar pierce and penetrate your heart? Did it serve as an alarm to awaken you? Did you think about the siren in Israel that makes a person scramble to a shelter and what is the shelter and place of refuge in our lives? Whatever is the symbolism that you want to tap into with the sound of the shofar, you can hear the shofar, like check, heard the shofar, let me see, how, how red did Goldberg's face get while he was blowing it? Where's cheek puffy? Is he gonna run into trouble? Will he make it through without a problem? There's all kinds of thoughts you can have while the shofar's being blown. Were they those? Or were they, I close my mind and I'm listening to those different diverse sounds of the shofar and does it pierce and penetrate and break open my heart so I feel something this Rosh Hashanah. Lo avarti mitzvah means, check, I did it, check. Lo shachachti means I didn't forget to be there. I didn't forget to be present while it was happening. Harambam maybe la'alacha is devri chazal. The Rambam quotes la'alacha as chazal brachos. Odas han hagas ha'chasidim ha'rishonim sh'ayishonim sh'achas l'fnei The Rambam quotes the practice of the early pious ones who would meditate and reflect and practice mindfulness for an hour before they davened. We run in and we say hello to 17 different people and we find our seat and we arrange our stuff and then we're in the Amida, we're standing we're to, as if we can have a conversation with an invisible being without working on it. You know what the early pious people did? They came, they sat, closed their eyes, took deep breaths in through their nose and out through their mouth and they practiced a little mindfulness. You could speak out loud, yeah. Penny, what did you say about Avigal Rock that Yechevet is telling me? The way she davened. Yeah. And no matter how we were rushed, she always stopped first. She would take her sitter, and I would see her just walk a little bit, close her eyes. You could tell that she was thinking about what she was going yep. to be doing before she started. She was one of the later pious all ones. The time. Yeah, so Avigal, Allah, Shalom. An amazing role model for us. So she lived and practiced exactly what we're being instructed to do, which is you don't run in. I mean, could you imagine running into the gym and, and setting the weight on the highest level and running into doing 50 reps of the highest weight and you just got into the gym? You didn't stretch, you didn't get your heart beating, you didn't get your blood flowing, you didn't work out on anything else first, and you go right to the heart. Talking to Hashem, the Amida standing in front of him and trying to connect and have a conversation is the hardest workout of the gym. You gotta build up to it. You gotta be ready for it if you're gonna get the most out of it and not injure yourself in the process. So the Hasidim Rishon of the early pious ones, or Avigail Allah Shalom, the latest pious ones, spend a moment in mindfulness, in personal reflection, clearing your head. Did I tell you about the trip to the beach we took, the Hispodidus? We should do a woman's Hispodidus from the Amunashir. But we did a men's Hispodidus a couple weeks ago. 
We met late at night at the beach, and we ate chalan. We don't have to do that for the women's version. It was a Thursday night, so we ate chalan, which is always good for mindfulness. And um, then we sat in a circle, and we studied a piece of text by Rav Nachman of Breslov. Hispodidus means solitude, aloneness with God, conversation with God all alone, clearing out all the noise and all the distractions and having a conversation not as if he's your best friend and not as if he's right in front of you, but talking to him because he's your best friend and because he's right in front of you. So we studied this piece and then we listened to a very moving song, Only You, that Rabbi Weinberger played last year when he spoke here, Ramosha Weinberger, Only You, Only You, about God. And then we talked about what his podus is and then we scattered across the pitch black beach and people sat there with nothing. Oh, we had a big box and everyone had to deposit their phone and we locked it. And without your phone, everybody spread out and they found their place. And not to yourself and not just with your eyes closed, but literally out loud had a conversation with God to train ourselves in that his the, the I wasn't sure how it went while it was going on because you don't really know. And afterwards, the emails and text messages showed just how, um, how amazing it was for people. It was really, really powerful. Really, really powerful. So the Hasidim Rishonim, you could do that hispododus, even you could be alone in a crowded room. You could be alone in a crowded room in a positive sense, which is you close your eyes, you breathe. We did some breathing exercises on the beach too. The word for breath in Hebrew is neshima. The word for soul in Hebrew is neshama. And it's not a coincidence that the two words are connected. How did we get our first breath? God put us together. He took some clay and some earth and he molded us together and he made the first man, Adam Arishon, Adam. And now it was time to bring him to life, to make him a breathing, animated being. How did he do it? He did not take a defibrillator and say clear and shock man into being. How did he do it? God breathed a piece of... When you breathe, the Kabbalists say, Rav Chaim Velazhner, I only really understood this this summer when we saw glass blowing. Because Rechaim Velazhner, Kabbalah gives the example of glass blowing. A person who blows glass takes a deep breath and they take the breath within themselves and they blow it to expand the glass. So the glass now has a piece of themselves in it. They took, when you take the deep breath within us, it's not easy to do. Not the superficial breath that's just in our voice box and beyond, but really from your diaphragm, a deep inner breath. If you've ever blown up balloons for your kid's birthday party, you need to take a nap afterwards. After half of one balloon, you're like, you can't breathe. Then you know that when you take the breath from deep inside you. So God created man by taking a deep breath within himself, and he breathed it into man, into us. And we all have a godly spirit and a godly soul. We have godliness. We have capacity for discipline. We have holiness within us because he breathed a piece of himself into us. How do we remember that? How do we renew that? How do we restore that? How do we get back to that? How do we reset ourselves to that? By breathing, by breathing, deep breathing. Neshama, neshima. We're in touch with our neshama when we take the time to have a proper neshima. When we breathe properly, we're nourishing not only the body, but the soul. Our generation also has major respiratory problems. There are studies that show your head has to be a certain level in order to really be breathing properly. Our head is always this level and our pathway is closed and we're breathing in a very shallow way. Also, we're always running and doing and going and we're not breathing. We're not getting the deep breaths the way we need. So that's true physically, but it's also true spiritually and emotionally. We're not breathing. We're not breathing emotionally. We're not breathing spiritually. We restore the neshama by taking a neshima. And now I'll give you the best part. You ready? Another Svas Emes. Svas Emes says, you want a kavana for when you hear the shofar on Rosh Hashanah? 
He says, this is why we're blowing the shofar. I could tell you as a shofar blower, do you know how we produce the sound in the shofar? If you try to blow it superficially from your larynx, you'll pass out and you won't get a good sound. You have to take a deep breath inside yourself in order to get the sound out of the shofar. So the person who's blowing the shofar is essentially declaring. By producing the sound of the shofar, what you're declaring is the breath that you put in me. On the first Rosh Hashanah, Rosh Hashanah corresponds with the sixth day of creation, the creation not of the world. Rosh Hashanah corresponds with the creation of mankind, of humanity. That is the anniversary of the day that God breathed life into us. How do we celebrate our anniversary of the day that God breathed life into us? By affirming that that breath is still there. How do we declare and affirm that that breath is still there? By using it to produce the sound of the shofar. You can't produce the sound of the shofar without using that breath deep inside us. And that's my way of saying, you know what, God, no matter how far I've gone from you, no matter how far I've strayed, no matter how much I've neglected our relationship, no matter how much I've undermined our relationship, still deep inside me on this anniversary of our relationship, there's a piece of you still deep inside me. I haven't forgotten it. And I can bring it out again. And here it is in the sound of a shofar. I'm producing this clarion call, this alarm that's produced by the reminder that there's a piece of you still deep inside me. So when we went to the beach, we, took, we did some deep breathing. It's really important. It's not a coincidence that any mindfulness practice, any meditation practice, any yoga practice is going to have breathing as a fundamental part of it. Being present in our breathing, being mindful in our breathing, being conscientious of our breathing, because neshama and neshima, they go together. So the Rambam says, Chassidim Rishonim would spend an hour. Now we don't spend an hour. Our psuke de Zimra corresponds with that amount of time. Psuke de Zimra is our buildup. It's the time that we're supposed to be thinking and reflecting and breathing and, and imagining. I'm getting rid of all the noise and all the distraction. I'm disconnecting in order to connect. And this is what the Rambam writes. The imagery we're supposed to have, how do you achieve kavana, is to turn our heart away from all the distractions and to see ourselves as if I'm standing before God. Standing before God. If you're in the Oval Office, no editorial comment of any president or whoever you would admire, would you be on your phone? It wouldn't even be with you. You'd leave it in the glove compartment. You'd leave it in your bag. You'd turn it all the way off, not just to vibrate. Because if you have an audience with an extraordinary person, a powerful person, a person who can be the solution to your problems, you're not going to even risk the possibility of being distracted. So the Rambam says a person has to sit a little bit and direct our heart and practice mindfulness. And the quality of your davening. One of the people who wrote to me said, you know, that night, I didn't think I got anything out of the hispodidus. That night, I, didn't, I sat, I had to, tried to have this conversation. I sang the song, the kumzitz, I ate the chalant. Maybe that's why I didn't get anything out of it. But I, I sat there and I wasn't sure I got anything out of it. He said, but the next morning when I davened, I realized how much I got out of it. The next morning at davening, which was, uh, you know, 12 hours later, that was the payoff of the experience of these devotees. So the Ram says the payoff, spend a few moments in mindful reflection, and when you daven, the quality of your davening will be different. So the chassidim rishonim, what made them exceedingly pious, is they spent a whole hour doing mindfulness every day. But the Rambam is codifying the halacha, it's Jewish law, that even if we don't have time or we, even we can't spend an hour, like Avigail, you have to spend ma'at, at least a little bit. You have to come into shul. That's why Rabbi Soloveitchik said, we always have ashray before Amida. 
we say Ashrei, if you're listening to, listening to Siddur snippets, we say Ashrei before the Amida. Amida means I'm standing before God. That's when I'm having this intimate rendezvous. That's when I have my audience in his oval office. That's my personal conversation. But before I can have an Amida, before I can be Omeid Lefnamah, before I can stand before God, I say Ashrei. What is Ashrei? To sit. Rabbi Salavitchik felt lahalacha that you have to be sitting in a sitting position when you say Ashrei. You come to Mincha, some people, you tell me you're scrambling, you're running, eh, I'm about to stand anyway and say the Amida, why bother sitting for Ashrei? Rabbi Salavitchik, if you see Rav Shechter, who's a student, follows and always sits for Ashrei. Because what's the sitting for Ashrei? You're making the statement, I'm not running in and running right into the Amida. I'm spending a moment sitting. A moment sitting, reflecting. Yeah, yeah, one should sit. Ashrei, before you do an Amida, you do an Ashrei. Before you say an Amida, you say an Ashrei. Before you can connect to God in conversation, you need to connect with yourself. How do you know what conversation you're gonna have with God if you haven't gathered your thoughts, if you're not doing some deep breathing, if you're not fully present and you haven't shut out all the distractions and everything that's going around? So the Rambam's not just saying this is a nice, virtuous thing to do. Oh, Abigail did it, and pious people do it, and holy people do it. This, this is something which is halacha. Do not begin to daven until you've closed your eyes and done a little breathing for 30 seconds, for 60 seconds. I wrote an article a few months ago about doing three minutes a day. I'm sure everybody's doing their three minutes. But if not for three minutes, and if not for one minute, for 10 seconds, you came into shul, sit down, for 10 seconds, deep breath, Close your eyes and have this imagination that you're pushing everything out and it's just you and him and what's important and what do I care about and what am I thankful for and what's going amazing in my life and what do I want to protest and what do I need to ask his help about and let me think and let me be and let me hear my own inner voice before I can express my voice to Hashem. It's badaku manusa. It's tried. It's tried and true, tested and true, that it works. It works. Not only will your davening, be, why do we care if your davening is different? Is God so arrogant that He cares so much about how you praise Him and how much time we praise Him? I'm not name dropping, but many years ago I did uh, Larry David's mother's funeral, and I spent two days with Larry David, the writer, the creator of Seinfeld who was a very fascinating personality. Um, but we had a lot of very deep conversations about Judaism, and one of them was this. Believe it or not, somebody so brilliant, and he may be wacky, but it's a brilliant wackiness, so brilliant, one of his biggest issues or obstacles to a relationship with God is, why is God so arrogant that I gotta pray to him every day? Is he so arrogant, he needs me to praise him, and you're this, and you're that, and you're great, and you're mighty, and you're, God is so arrogant that you need to praise him? So I said to him, Larry, with all due respect, you think your praises really do anything for God? You know, if I gave the analogy that, you know, if, if a five-year-old would, would tell uh, Tiger Woods, you're a great golfer, would Tiger Woods be like proud? Would that be a great compliment? He'd pinch the kid's cheek and he'd say, that's nice. You really have no idea what golf is, what golf is good. You don't, you don't know anything about it. If Phil Mickelson tells Tiger, you're a great golfer, it means something to Tiger. So I told him, our pra God tolerates our praises. He doesn't ask them, he doesn't need them, he doesn't want them, they do nothing for him. Aside from the fact that he's perfect and omnipotent, at most he tolerates our praises and our prayers. He doesn't need it. We don't do it for him. We're doing it for us. And why are we doing it for us? Because coming full circle, and what this will end for today, we're doing it for us because it is an exercise in humility. We live in the world and the world 
and the feedback the world gives us only increases and promotes our arrogance, right? We do something and it gets a result. So that makes us believe the illusion that we are in charge. I made an investment and had a return. I did a good business decision and I made a lot of money. I went to the doctor, I took the medicine, I worked out and I got better and I healed. We take action, we take initiative and hopefully, please God, our actions and our initiative bring about results. And that leads to the continued, continued mistaken notion that we're in charge, that we're in control, that it's all about us. And then we have a big problem because the more arrogant we are, the less room there is for others and the more that we really hurt and harm people and relationships. And most of all, we harm ourselves with our arrogance because we become isolated. Even if we're surrounded by people who are acting as if they want to be with us, um, if they're arrogant, nobody wants to be with an arrogant, manipulative person. So we, we become arrogant through our day, through our success, and then the arrogance ends up only hurting us. So davening is amazing. Three times a day, you come to shul, three times a day, even at home, you open your sitter, and here's what the sitter says. Let me paraphrase the entire sitter. You're an idiot. Don't be arrogant, you fool. You're in charge of nothing. And if everyone would really know how pathetic and insecure you are, even with all of your success, don't get so high and mighty. Because all I have to do, says God, is send you just a little, just a little uh, problem. You know, there's a, a great quote. I don't know who said it. That Nebuch, there are people who are so poor, all they have is money. Nebuch, there are people so poor, all they have is money. Money's great. Money's great. Money buys a lot of convenient things and comfort. Money can solve a lot of problems and money can help you indulge in luxury. Money can be great. But Nebuch, there are people so poor, all they have is money. They have no self-confidence, they have no real relationships, they have no richness of life, they have no happiness or joy, they have no serenity, peace of mind, or peace of body. Nebuch, there are people who are so rich that all they have is money. So we should never think that our arrogance, that we're in charge. So we have this platform called davening, which is amazing. Three times a day we come and we say, you schnook, you nothing. Remember that you're nothing and that you need me because it could all disappear overnight. And all the money in the world can't solve what are the biggest problems. When a person is diagnosed with a terminal illness and we've lost precious and dear friends and all the money in the world couldn't bring them back and all the money in the world couldn't stop what was happening to them. So who can afford to think they're arrogant? Who could think they're arrogant and they're in control and they're in charge and they're going to dictate to others and to God and impose themselves? Who could make that mistake? Who could live through this year and see what our community went through? Who could see what happens? Ari Folds site was just now. All the money in the world would have stopped Ari Fold's death, his murder at the hands of a heinous, a heinous terrorist. Who could have lived this past year? Mike Stern, Danny Grayshower, Abigail Rock, Brian. Who could live this year and have the arrogance and the ego to impose their will on others, to think they're in charge and in control, to dictate to God and to people around them? And to not realize how vulnerable and how fragile and how short life is and what really matters and what really counts and what really lasts. So three times a day we get together and we say to Hashem, you're in charge, I concede. I work for you, you don't work for me. In between the davening, I'm going to go out and work hard and work hard and try to kill it and take every initiative I can. But then I keep coming back to that anchor and to remember that this is an exercise in humility that God, you are in charge, not me. I work for you, you don't work for me. Let's just actually finish these last quick sentences and then we'll pick up next week with the new chapter. Very quickly, We talked about how with Emunah, with faith, 
we can heal the fire inside us. We can extinguish the arrogance inside us and instead have that fire burn for us to do good. And through this we can heal anger and arrogance. Someone living with this absolute faith in God, arrogance has no place in their life. Anger has no room in their life. By the way, has anyone, did anyone ever see any of the names I just mentioned raise their voice, lose it with anger? Is it a coincidence? Tragically, why God takes the best of us, I don't and can't ever understand. But those names I mentioned from our community alone, Brian and Danny and Abigail and Mike and Ari Fult, these were people who had such deep faith, such unbelievable faith. And is it a coincidence they had great faith and also were humble and didn't get angry? It all goes together. You want to work on those character traits, then work not on the symptom, work on the core, which is faith. Have the humility to realize there's someone bigger and greater and more in charge and that we defer and submit to him. Everything that happens is for a reason. There's no room to ever get angry. There's no room to ever act arrogantly. You have to analyze and study character traits the same way you do anything else. We have to analyze and study and understand and appreciate and learn from them. The more that emuna is alive within us, the more that it'll bring out the best of us and in us, and it'll give us the best lives we could have. If we want the richest, most meaningful relationships, if we want access and to be able to learn from the messages of people around us, if we want to be to grow to be the best version of ourselves, if we want to become cool and collect and make the best decisions, if we want to leave the best legacy, then we can arrive at it all when we work on that sense of faith within us. Have a fantastic day.